years ago when my dad would come and visit here on Westwood, he'd run into one of our one of our saints that's gone on, C.W. Holman. And, I, and Dad and C.W. would have the same conversation every Sunday out there. You know, Dad would ask C.W., well, you know, how things going here, you know? And C.W. would often say, well, we just never know what's going to happen next. And I thought about that, and that is healthy, okay? That is a healthy thing for a church, to not necessarily know what is going to happen next. So I told Matthew this week, I said, instead of singing two songs, scripture and prayer, two songs, sermon, pray, leave, do that. Let's do two or three songs in the first set, and then we'll do scripture and prayer, and then we'll sing another song and then the sermon. So you just don't know, all right? You just don't know. Just giving you a heads up. Things might be a little different, okay? So we all make decisions every day, all right? Every single one of us. I made the decision this morning to have some yogurt for breakfast, all right? You may have decided something else. Every single one of us, every single day, make decisions. Many of those are really inconsequential. They're not going to be a big deal. They're not going to matter much in the long run. In the, in the big picture, they're not going to make much difference. But then there are days and there are decisions that we make that are eternally consequential. They change our lives. They change the lives of people that we know and love. I read several weeks ago about the work of the gospel that's going on in Muslim countries, especially in the African continent. There was a story of a man named Bakile. He was a former Muslim who lived in an Ethiopian village. A mission team came in and shared the gospel with him. Started in the Old Testament with the pictures of the covenants and shared the gospel message with Bakile. And he made the decision to trust in Christ. Took that message home to his family, his wife, his children, and several of his extended family members made the decision to trust in Jesus. When they did not show up the next Friday night at the mosque for services, the elders came to visit them the next day. And then when they came to visit and heard of his conversion, they immediately began to demand that Bakile and his family renounce their faith. And they're young believers. They've only been following Christ for a couple of weeks. But they knew enough of Christ and they understood enough of what was happening in their lives to not be willing to turn away from that. Their transformation was profound. They'd made a big decision and it made a big difference in their life. And in fact, they told those who came to call on them that they needed to trust in Jesus. So they threw stones at them. They they threatened them and said, you need to be at the mosque the following Friday night, which they were not. They made the decision not to go. So the next day, those same elders came back, tied up his wife and his children outside of the house, pelted them with rocks while they threatened Bekele and told him he needed to renounce his faith and say that there is only one God and his name is Allah. He refused. So they slit his throat in front of his family. Continued to bring harm upon his family. But Bekele was the first, if you will, of martyrs in his village. The first Muslim convert who turned to Jesus and was willing to give his life. He made a decision that day. A decision that ended up eternally impacting that village. As others thought there must be something to this and turned to him. So, I use that illustration either of the yogurt or of being willing not to turn, not to go along, to stand on your faith. As an illustration of what it means to make decisions. Some are big, some are little. And that's what we have in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. David and Jonathan come to 
a, a, a day in their lives, a season in their lives, a situation in their lives where both of them have to make decisions that will change the course of their life and will indeed change the course of the history of a nation. And so Jonathan and David come together and they make this decision. They make these decisions individually and together. And they do so in spite of what's it cost. Much is at stake for Jonathan and David. And yet there is a greater principle, a greater purpose behind what forces them or causes them to make this decision. And that decision is based on their covenant relationship with God and their covenant relationship with one another. That's how they decide. If you look at the passage, look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. And just note, if you will, down in chapter 20, verse 8. I'm going to read a portion of the chapter. It's the longest chapter in 1 Samuel. We're not going to read the whole part of it. But down in verse 8, as David is having this conversation with Jonathan, he says, Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. So this covenant with the Lord is the basis of everything that transpires in this conversation. And in fact, it's everything that's the basis of what has transpired in Jonathan's life for several chapters in Samuel and indeed several years of his life. Remember, what we have in these narrative accounts in Samuel is not boom, 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 one after the other. The next day they did this, the next day they did this, the next day. This is a long period of time here, several years. And so what we have transpiring here is the fact that there is a covenant in place, I will say, between Jonathan and God, between David and the Lord, and then together between the two of them. And they make these decisions based on that covenant love. Covenant terms are throughout this passage, okay? Ideas of covenant love, hesed love, mercy, loving kindness, it's all the way through this passage. And so last week, remember, we saw that David's faith was assailed really in so many different ways by the fears and frustrations that came. His life was, he was doing the right things for crying out loud. He was being faithful and his life was falling apart. And we see that his faith was strengthened by the understanding that number one, that happens. And number two, that God is protecting him and God is providentially, sovereignly working to just work these things out in David's life. Through Jonathan as a friend, through his wife. Through the Holy Spirit himself, we see in chapter 19. So God is at work there. And so this week, David and Jonathan's faith is sustained by the reality of God's covenant love in them, for them, and through them to each other. So let's read a portion of it. Let's start at the beginning. One of the things about narrative passages that I encourage you as you read through these, and please do that. Please read as we're getting ready to go into a section. Read it this afternoon and following up as you think about how the Lord. Look at key words. One of the key words that you see in this season of David's life throughout this portion of Samuel is the word fled or ran or escaped. Because David is running for his life. It says in verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Jonathan replied, Far from it, for you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. 
But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So, David then lays out this plan, starting at verse 5, about this monthly feast, this monthly dinner that goes on in the home of the royal family. And everyone is expected to be there. And so David says, I'll not show up this time. You go and see how your dad handles that. That's basically what the, what's, what's transpiring here. And Jonathan agrees to do that. And he, and he goes on and says there, If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave me and run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. If your father, he says in verse 7, says, Good, then it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. And then David says, Deal kindly with your servant based on the covenant love that we have. And then Jonathan says in verse 9, Far be it from you for... If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And then Jonathan comes up with his plan. So David and Jonathan are together conspiring. This is not, this is not a third time I'll say, this is not a principle for us to apply. We don't need to be coming up with stories and making up tales, okay? But the Bible doesn't speak to the proper you know, whether or not this is proper, this is just what happened. Same thing happened in the, in the past chapter with David's wife. All right? Her devotion was to him and to the Lord, and she did what she needed to do. The Bible just says, this is what happened. It's not a principle to follow. It's just a picture of what they did. Same thing here. David comes up with this story. Jonathan says, I will do it. And then Jonathan comes up with a plan about how David will know how the whole deal goes. Here's what I want us to see in this first section here. All right? Just this idea that faith is sustained by this covenant, even when we're confused and don't know what's going on. Or at least it, it clarifies next steps. David will leave chapter 20 still troubled, still somewhat confused, and he will still be on the run for many chapters, for many years. But at least in this case, covenant love clarifies that confusion and at least points them in the right direction. There's a confused saint here. David's saying, what have I done? Why is this happening? My life is unraveling before my eyes and I'm being faithful as far as I can tell. And he is. And yet his life has fallen apart. He's a confused saint. And I love the commitment of Jonathan. There is a committed son here. And by this I mean committed. He is committed to his father. He has given his dad the benefit of the doubt. You got it wrong, David. You got it wrong. And I, and I love that, that he's looking for the best in his father. That will change in just a bit. But he's looking for the best. There's a committed son. And then there's this clearer understanding of David. I believe the Lord's given him insight. I believe the fact that the spear had been thrown at him gave him insight. He said, you're wrong. There's one step between me and death, Jonathan. Your dad's not being honest with you. He's not letting everything clear, making everything clear. And so they come up with this plan. And I, I think, again, this covenant love, this calm, calm and confident assurance of the, uh, the relationship they have gives them, if you will, the courage to step out and take these next steps. 
All of that is based on that one word, deal kindly. It's the same concept, hesed love, that same covenant commitment, deal kindly. Jonathan makes this commitment that he will do that, okay? Now, here's the point I want to make just with these first few verses, and it's a point of application, but think about it for a second. I don't care how confusing, how confounding, or how difficult life becomes for us. And it does, right? It does. But in Christ, we always have someone to go to. We always have a covenant committed friend, a covenant committed brother that we can go to that offers stability, offers support. David had that in Jonathan. Jonathan's a picture of what that covenant relationship we have with Christ looks like. And so you can always take yourself to the one who has made that covenant with you and bought for it, paid and bought for it with his own blood. And I'll give you a decision time at the end of the service to trust in this one who shed his blood to give you the peace of God that passes understanding. But just know that it's available. I love what one commentator said. He said, you will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's loving kindness. We feel like we're falling. We feel like life's just cut the foundation out from under us. But there's a net. There's a net. There's a safety net there. It's the covenant love of God. I love it in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses pled with God to be merciful to his rebellious people. He pled. He was interceding on behalf of Israel. And God revealed himself to Moses by declaring his name. And the name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 34 is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those those two terms there, steadfast love and merciful, are all that same idea of covenant love. It's the same idea that when that covenant love took on flesh in John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory has been only begotten full of grace and truth. Grace and truth was God's name on the mountain to Moses. Grace and truth is what took on flesh and came to us in Jesus. And you'll never perish when you fall back on his covenant love. So this plan is in place, is in place. Go to the dinner, David says. I'll not be there. See how your dad takes it. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 12. Down through verse 17. I'm going to read that next. Follow along with me. But let's do something first. Because commentators point out, and I think it's pretty cool. You could skip from verse 11 down to verse 18, and nothing would really change in the flow of the story. So why is it that the Holy Spirit would give us verses 12 through 17? What's the point of that? I mean, just listen. Verse 11, Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. Look at verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. And he goes on to lay out the plan. So they just are planning. You could skip this middle part. Why is it there? Well, listen as I read. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, 
The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take the vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This amazing few verses here. It, as I read it over and over, and I can tell you how many times I've read this, and every time I read it, it just tugs at my heart. And this picture of faith that is sustained by covenant that seeks to secure the future of the other party in that covenant. Covenant does that. Think about the difference between a covenant and a contract. What's a contract for? It's for me. It's to make sure that what you say you will do gets done And I have a contract in place that protects me, myself, my interest, my property. A contract is is very self-centered, not in a negative way. We need contracts. But we have a contract with each other so that I'm sure you're going to do what you said you would do for me, or you're sure that I will do what I said I would do for you. Covenant is different. A covenant is different. A covenant is committed to the well-being of the other party. I'm talking about biblical covenant here. Marriage covenant, membership covenant in the church. That kind of a covenant, that biblical covenant, is committed to the well-being of the other party. And secondly, willing to go the distance, whatever the cost is, to see that that's done. Look at the cross. That's what that commitment is. A willingness to see that... My future is secure through Christ, and that price is paid. So, with that understanding, just see how this section here unfolds. Covenant love seeks to secure the future of the other participant, even at great personal cost. Jonathan, it's incredible his faith. It's incredible his courage. David appealed to Jonathan based on a covenant relationship, and Jonathan's going to do the same thing. And what Jonathan does here is political suicide. It's political suicide. He is going against the king and against his father on behalf of the one who will take the throne one day instead of Jonathan. It's Jonathan's throne by culture, by custom, by the political progress and the political process of that day. And so what Jonathan does in going against his father on behalf of David, and in fact ensuring that David will be on the throne, is following up on the commitment that he made to David earlier when he gave him his armor, gave him his sword, gave him his regalia as the, as the prince, and said, this is yours now. Jonathan understands what God is doing. Jonathan sees what God is up to. And Jonathan is standing there on behalf of David and willing to take that love, that covenant love he has, and confront his father with it. Jonathan says, I'll take care of this. I'll go to dad. I'll be at the dinner, and I'll let you know how it goes. And this covenant love then is reciprocal. Because look at what Jonathan then turns around and does and asks of David. If I'm still alive, in verse 14, actually verse 13 is an incredible verse. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, Jonathan says. 
The Spirit of God was on my father at one point in time, Jonathan says. As the king, God had anointed him. But God removed that spirit. Here, Jonathan is making this amazing statement of faith. May you have what my father used to have so that you can serve as my father is not. That's what I read into those words. And I don't think that's inaccurate. And then he says, if I'm still alive, show me steadfast love. Show me covenant love. Don't cut off your covenant love, your steadfast love for my house forever. Jonathan is asking David to make an extraordinary commitment to him that, again, in many ways, is political suicide. Because the scheme of the day, the theme of the day, much as it seems to be in politics our day, is that you kill your competitors. You stomp them. You do all you can to attack them personally or in any other way you can. And what I call that that process in David's day is precautionary purging. Whoever might be in line, you do away with them. And it's the custom historically. Just it's it's the custom even in the Bible. We see it happening over and over. But David says, "No. That's not what I will do." David promises to preserve, to preserve Jonathan's life and even more importantly, the lives of his descendants. One writer said, covenant conquers culture. Oh, God, please may that be the case with your people. Covenant conquers culture. So this covenant love is reciprocal. And not only does David promise to protect Jonathan should he live, but he promises to protect his family. And over in 2 Samuel chapter 9, when we get there, we will hear David ask this question. Is there still someone left in the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. That I may show him the kindness of God. And come limping into that room will be Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. Oh, I can't wait till we get there. We'll see it. All right? Covenant love is reciprocal. And this covenant love is just such a picture of the demonstration. It demonstrates how far God is willing to go to secure our future. How far he's willing to go... To bring us back to himself. Isaiah chapter 43 says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. And God is doing a new thing here. He is calling up a new man out of a new context. Totally extraordinary. Unbelievable how he's working to bring David to the throne. And that's exactly what God does later on in Christ. Calling him up out of this amazing line of a family. But in ways that no one would have guessed. No one would have thought this is coming about. This whole picture points us. It's a type of Christ. It's a picture of what God is doing for us in Jesus. One other thing here that just kind of tugs at my heart. This idea of covenant love sustaining and strengthening our faith. It strengthens our faith as we show kindness to others on behalf of what God has done for us. Because of what God has done for us. Because of what, because of what God is doing in Jonathan's life and what he's doing in David's life. They're willing to extend that covenant love to each other. Helping secure their future. I couldn't help but think about this as I've watched people in this church family, people in my own personal family and Susan's family, go to extraordinary lengths making major decisions for the sake of the future of someone else. It's astounding. It happens all the time, but it's not the kind of thing that gets a lot of glamour. It's not in the news. It's not something that... People are doing to get attention. 
I don't know if you remember the story. I've shared it before. Maybe you're familiar with it. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia College. It became Columbia International University. And in 1990, he was six years away from full retirement, and he quit. He stepped down as the president of the college to go home and take care of Muriel, his wife, who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. His friends thought he was crazy. Put her in an institution. Put her in a home. You don't need to stop your career. You can do both. McQuilkin stepped down just short of retirement. And this is what he said. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm and it took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health? Till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, he says. She had, after all, cared for me almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I'd never be out of her debt. Covenant love that sustains and strengthens our faith also sustains and strengthens the faith of others as we show them the same kindness, the covenant love of God that we've received. That's what McQuilkin did for his wife. That's what I've seen countless people do for their ailing parents, for their struggling children, for their sick spouse. As they step in and try to assist and serve in a neighbor, as they open up their home for foster care or of adoption, as they go into prisons to teach or mentor, this is the kind of covenant commitment that you're not going to get a lot of attention for until one day, The covenant king who shed his son's blood to secure your redemption will stand before you. You'll stand before him and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Covenant love seeks to secure the future and is willing to show great kindness, even at great cost. So Jonathan goes into his dad's dinner that day. They have the Jonathan went into the. Into the new moon festival, it's called. The seat is empty where David sits. First day, Saul doesn't really say much about it. He thinks, well, probably David's just unclean. Something's happened. David's not here. But then a second day comes and David is not there. And Saul is angry. And so the account, Jonathan answers Saul. David's place was empty. I'm reading down in verse 27. Why has the son of Jesse come to the meal? Not come to the meal. Either yesterday or today. It's kind of interesting to me that Saul's not even calling him by his first name. There's a great removal there. There's a great distance in the heart of Saul. And, and Jonathan tells the story that they've come up with. David asks to leave, to go to Bethlehem, be with his family on a day of sacrifice. For this reason, he's not at the king's table. In verse 30... Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. And then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. 
So Jonathan knew, I bet he did, Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. That's extraordinary. It's extraordinary the depth to which Saul's spiritless heart has sunk. And it's amazing to see the spirit in Jonathan. Not necessarily the Holy Spirit, but just the courage and the commitment that Jonathan has to go into his dad and confront him with what he's doing. To receive his father's own cursing and then his father's ever-present sword. Another thing about a narrative that's important, church, is when you see something, even something visual like that sword, like that spear, repeated over and over and over, that's a big deal. The word for spear is in the Old Testament a lot, but it's in First and Second Samuel more than in any other place. And Saul is never without his spear, which is interesting, is it not? David said to Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of hosts. Goliath and Saul are just like this. They're no different. They're trusting in their weapons. They're trusting in their warfare. They're trusting in their strength. Jonathan's trusting in the spirit of God. Just a... Kind of aside there. It's an amazing contrast between Jonathan and his father. So Jonathan goes into his father. And you know what? This is one place where Saul is absolutely right. Saul is dead on correct when he said, As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Amen, Saul. That's exactly right. Remember what Psalm 2 said? The kings and the, and the nations rage against God. The kings and the princes set themselves against the Lord's anointed. And God sits on his holy hill and laughs at them. Because he puts his own king, his own son, on his throne. Saul is driven by personal ambition. So listen very carefully, men or women or students. If personal ambition is the drive in our lives, it is self-serving. And building our personal kingdom over above the kingdom of God, I promise you, based on the authority of God's word and history throughout, it will fail. It will fail. If you are pursuing and building your own personal kingdom, and that is the passion, that is the true north of your compass, you're headed for devastation and destruction. And that's what Saul was driven by. So Jonathan confronts his father in this. And Jonathan's faith in God is just a clear contrast to Saul's faith in his spear, which, by the way, he's evidently a really bad shot. Seems to be, okay? But Saul's faith in God supersedes his own personal ambitions and his own personal goals. And so Saul just doesn't get it. Why not? For the same reason that some of you here or somebody watching or somebody listening later on, you may think, I I just don't get any of that. And and I understand why you don't get any of that. You don't get any of that because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. They're a foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually ingested and understood through the Spirit of God. The ways of the kingdom will never, ever be understood by the world. Never. Don't expect it. Jonathan, on the other hand puts God's anointed, i.e. David first. He puts God's word first, 
That word being that David would be the one to sit on the throne. And Jonathan puts that first even above his own natural path to the throne, which David stands in the way of. You know what, you know what Jonathan exemplifies here? What Jesus said in, John, in, in Luke 14. Some of the hardest words you'll ever hear from Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Hebrew language and the Greek also, but especially the Hebrew, offers starkness. There's not a lot of gray in it. And I think we understand Jesus is not saying that we disdain, that we hate, that we violently oppose any of those family members. He's simply saying that we can't love them and Jesus in the same way. And we can't walk with them and walk with Christ in the same way. Jonathan gets that. He can't keep the kingdom and keep his relationship with his father and at the same time honor God's anointed. And so he makes a choice. He makes a choice. The application point from this particular part before we finish it out here is just this. It just comes from Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. Let this mindset be in you which was in Christ Jesus. This mindset of Christ is this. Jesus was willing to leave the glory of heaven and pursue not his own interest, but the interest of others. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Faith supersedes our own personal ambitions. So Jonathan puts his portion of the plan in place. It's simply this. David, go hide in the field. I'm going to go out there with my, with my young servant boy. I'll carry my bow and my arrows, and I'm going to shoot some arrows. Here's what you listen for, David, as you hide. I'll shoot those arrows, and I'll direct that boy to go find them for me. If I say to him, they are beside you, then, David, it's okay. You can come out. It's safe to come back to the palace. It's safe to come back into Saul's house. If I say to you, it's okay, they're beside you, then you know it's okay. If I say to the boy, they're past you, go beyond there, then David, that's kind of the secret word. You go beyond too. You keep going. So those, kind of those key words, okay? I think that's how simple it gets. If I tell my, my guy to go to the left or the right, then it's okay for you to come back if they're beside. If I tell him to keep going, then you keep going, David. And that's what he does. And look at what transpires. David had hid himself in the field, it says in verse 24. But as this, as this comes to, a, to an end in verse 35, In the morning Jonathan went out into the field into the appoint, to the appointment with David and had with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called to the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick. Don't stay. Do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy was gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. 
saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Faith is sustained by a covenant love that establishes peace. We've sung about it, and here we see it played out before us. The plan is carried out. David does just what Jonathan told him to do. Jonathan does just what he said he would do. And the grief and the pain here is palpable. It just, it's just everywhere that we read, everything that we see. And what's sad about it to me as I read it is that in our culture, it's foreign in many ways. For two men to have this kind of spiritual connection and emotional affection for one another seems to be something that we only, not only don't understand, but don't want anything to do with. We shy away from it. Oh, golly, what would people think? You know, I wonder, I wonder what... There's got to be something more going on there. Oh, how culture has so confused us and caused us to not be able to see what clear Scripture wants us to see, which is the depth of spiritual commitment and the depth of emotional attachment that can be between two brothers. And I mean spiritual brothers. I mean brothers in Christ. And the pain here, the grief is, is just pouring off the page. David rose beside the stone heap and came out and bowed three times before Jonathan. They kissed and they wept with David weeping the most. The humility of David is one of the things that you need to see here. Three times he bows before Jonathan. We will see this unfold in the rest of 1 Samuel. David will not, under any circumstances, approach the throne or take it in any other way except what God has determined. And for right now, Saul is still king, and Jonathan is still the crown prince, and David is just a servant. He's successful. He's a brother-in-law. But Saul is still king, and Jonathan is still the crown prince. And David humbles himself and bows to the ground as he would culturally do. Three times he gives Jonathan that honor that he deserves as the crown prince. Three times he humbles himself. And then his heart just pours out. There is a spiritual connection here, but we cannot miss the emotional connection either. And in the Old Testament, as is the case in many parts of the world today, a kiss is more common a way to greet and show respect than even a handshake. That's just the way it is. First time I went to Ukraine 25 years ago, and a brother came up and planted one on me as I reached out my hand. I realized pretty quickly, you ain't Roxborough, Gerald. They do things different here. And it was honorable. It was respectful. It was humble. And throughout the Old Testament... This picture, this expression of friendship and veneration of respect. Samuel kissed Saul after he anointed him as king. In Psalm 2, remember what the kings of the earth are called to do? Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. It's respect. It's veneration. It's giving respect to the one to whom it is due. And what what a reversal of the rage that David and Jonathan both have experienced from Saul as they pour their hearts out to each other and honor each other in such a way. They're tears of respect, but they are tears of separation too. I believe they're tears of grief. You know why? Sin separates. Sin rips apart hearts and families and homes and communities. 
When people make decisions that are foolish and act on those little decisions that may not seem like a big deal at the time, whole families can be changed for generations to come. Oh, listen, guys, the news of that, the proof of that is recent and clear. Just making a stupid decision has long-lasting, heavy, weighty, heartbreaking consequences. And here there's pain over the separation. Saul has ripped apart his family. He's ripped apart his palace. He's ripped apart his reign. And now he's ripping apart Jonathan David's heart. And the hostility of Saul means that David and Jonathan are going to have to part. And they will never again be together. This is the only conversation between David and Jonathan that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record for us. I know they had more. Surely they did. They knew each other for years. It's his brother-in-law for crying out loud. But it's the only one that's recorded for us. And the last word in this conversation is a word of peace. Jonathan's final word to him. And this is what I think Jonathan is saying. He says, go in peace because we've sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. The Lord shall be between you and me, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And I think Jonathan is saying, David, the Lord is in you and me. And because he's in you and me, he is between you and me. And that bond is unbreakable. It is unbreakable. Listen very carefully to this. There is a reconciling bond in Christ stronger than any blood relationship in family. Stronger than any national identity under a flag. Stronger than any political relationship under some platform. The bond that we have in Jesus together is eternal. None of those others is. Oh, we'll know each other in heaven. But I'm just telling you, there's a reconciling bond in Christ that is stronger than blood, family, politics, culture, or circumstances. And that bond that unites us together has been blood-bought by Jesus through the initiation of God's great redemptive plan. We have... Therefore, Paul says in Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that peace is established by the covenant of God through Christ. He goes on in verse 10 to say that while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that because those walls have been broken down, because we are reconciled together in Christ, Jesus himself is our peace and has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow saints and citizens in the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that bond is eternal. And it transcends every other relationship. No, I don't mean we set them aside and they're unimportant. But again, that's the preeminent relationship in our lives. And that makes all the others a sweeter blessing. A sweeter blessing to us and to those that are in it. So Jonathan has this covenant commitment with David. Not just because he's family. Not just because he's a friend. And not even really just because he's the anointed king, but because of that, that bond that they have together in their relationship with Yahweh, with God. Listen, that's just a picture that points us to the example of the covenant commitment that God has made to us in Christ. The extent and the length he was willing to go on our behalf. Remember, you will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's loving kindness. Never. 
And those words that describe God as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, those are the words that point us to Jesus. So you have a decision to make today. I think you have a decision to make before you get up and leave this room. The first decision is trusting in Jesus. Turning from your sin and your rebellion. Turning from our Saul-like tendencies to want to build our kingdom, our way. Trust in our spears and in our strength. To turn from that and turn to God's anointed. To turn to Jesus, who is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of grace and truth. You have a decision to make today. To turn from that sin. To turn from that self-made kingdom. And to turn to Christ. But church, we also have a decision to make. Again, last week, from Psalm 2. Our rebellion is not so much overt, storm in the streets, holding signs and rebelling against the reign of God in our lives and the authority of Christ over our hearts. No, our, our, our battles are in the heart. Our battles are in the heart. And, and, and the question that comes before us today is the same one, the same one Joshua asked the people of God that day. Choose this day who you're going to serve, church. That's a choice we have to make every day. You could have trusted in Jesus 65 years ago. But you still have to make a decision today to trust in Him and submit to Him as Lord in that conversation you're going to have after church, in that decision you're going to make this afternoon, in that relationship that you have at school. Maybe it's kind of mellowed out over the summer, but when fall kicks back in, student, you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to walk with Jesus or are you going to walk with Him or her? Dad, are you going to walk with Jesus today? It's easy on Sunday. What about tomorrow when you go in on, into the office? And the boss and the peers and the game plan and the marketing plan and the incentives that come as a part of the bonus all demand that you do something contrary to the way that God would want you to do it. You're going to have a decision to make. You see that? So is that decision making based on the covenant love of God that has shed the the blood of His Son so that we could be brought into a saving relationship with Him? Finally, one just little application when you sit down with that doctor, or you sit down with that grieving family member, or you sit down in that circumstance where life and sin and death and all that goes with it is just kind of taken up residence right there, even then we're called to make a decision to trust in the words of Jesus, where he says, peace I leave with you. My peace, he says in John 14, I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your heart be troubled. Preach to yourself, church. Go to the Word. Go to brothers and sisters. Pray together. Preach to yourself. Let not your heart be troubled. Much of the discouragement, the depression, a lot of those things, oh, there's a lot of physical, emotional reasons behind those that are absolutely accurate. I know this. But there's also times when we just make a decision that I think I'm going to worry about it. Don't. Jesus says, my peace I give you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture of David and Jonathan's covenant love with you and their covenant love with each other. Their commitment to to the future of each other. Their commitment to your purposes and plans being carried out in that other man's life and in the life of his family. Father, grow that commitment in us as brothers and sisters in Christ here.
Lord, plant our hearts deep in the soil of your covenant love for us in Christ. And may the fruit of that, God, bring glory to you, glory to our relationships here in this church, and glory in our witness and our work out in this community and around the world. And again, Father, I pray that someone would trust in Jesus today. Do that work in their heart. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.